0: Hello, and welcome to The Katie Helper Show. Sorry it's been a minute. I've been working on these YouTube shows, uh, doing a lot of live shows, but I will be releasing my podcast regularly, once again, starting now. I'll also be releasing Patreon episodes, and to access those, go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. On this show, we have a really jam-packed show. We've got Kyle Kalinsky. We got Zephyr Teachout, we got Evan Greer, and we got Shahid Buttar. Zephyr Teachout is an author, a Fordham Law professor, with an anti-corruption, anti monopolist pro-labor focus. Shahid Bhutar ran against Nancy Pelosi. He's an advocate, artist, organizer, lawyer. Evan Greer is the deputy director of Fight for the Future. And Jack Allison, who's my co-host, is the co-host of the Struggle Session podcast. He's also the host of the AM Jack Twitch show. I'm gonna bring in our first guest who I've been uh, very excited to have on, been wanting to have him on for a while. Uh, You probably know him, you probably love him. You probably watch him, hear him, and he is none other than Kyle Kalinske, uh, and he has a new show, a new podcast with Crystal Ball, and uh, let's just bring him in. Kyle. Hey. Hi, What's can you hear everybody?
1: us? Yeah, Hi, I can thanks hear you so much time. for joining
0: us. Great. My
1: pleasure. Do you hear me okay? Is my mic yes. audio good? Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, your audio is great, yeah. Um, awesome. Yes, yeah, so Welcome to the show um i just want this is jack my co-host
2: hi what's going on kyle how are you how's it going man nice to meet you good good nice to meet you too
0: thank you so much for making time for us uh we know how busy you are and uh let's what are you uh thinking about politically right now what's on your on your what's on your radar quote your co-host <laughs> Chris from uh
1: um, I mean it's the same thing everybody's thinking about right now. So it's you know what uh, happened. I know with what you're this. talking
0: about uh, uh, Kanye and uh <laughs> Kardashian. Yeah, right,
1: so
0: right. yeah, this is a safe space. Yeah, I,
1: I just I can't believe that that marriage failed. I thought that that thing was set in stone. Well, you and,
0: actually did tweet about it. Now they remember, right? Yeah, yeah. You were yeah like, I did. If they can't make it. Who, who can, can't yeah. make
2: it? We're all screwed because
0: yeah, you I, know, we're
2: I, supposed I, to be I, perfect. You two are joking, but obviously the news on everybody's mind is how um, Kamala Harris had the wrong outfit on the cover of Vogue. Uh, (laughs) There are there are just days where you look at the news and you're like, I can't believe my eyes. And that's what I felt like today when I saw the news breaking about the cover of Vogue um, and Kamala Harris.
0: What was her problem? What was wrong with it?
2: They used the wrong picture.
1: Yeah, they they told her they were
0: literally.
2: they told her they were going to
1: use the picture of her in like a baby blue outfit, and they used one with her in a different color. And apparently, her people were flipping out behind the scenes, which goes to show you Kamal Harris is exactly who we thought she was. Because instead right. of priorities. What's, yeah, what's happening in the country right now and like an attempted insurrection she's like oh my god yeah. my outfit is the wrong color
2: Kamala yeah. Harris is like a a sitting senator who potentially could be like overseeing the impeachment if that kind of thing happens and one week before they would have been talking about the outfit in Vogue that's
1: exactly well, right
0: am I supposed to I, I would love to try to I, I, I went to Wesleyan so I feel like I can wokeify anything and turn oh, everything wow. into a feminist you know subversive move much like um, you know, neoliberal feminists have done with Nancy's clapping. So I'm just going to say that Kamala. Well, first of all, because what what color is it? It's not baby blue. Can someone tell me the actual color?
2: It, well, the thing is, also, it was like a baby blue pantsuit versus they switched it to a blazer with jeans and like Converse. So it was like a more down to earth look versus right. a more Hillary fied look. Got or it. Whatever. Got it. Okay. So here's they my. Wanted the Hillary fied look, and they got the Converse.
0: Okay. So here's the thing. Um. That is a de- they are depriving her of her agency. Mm. She has uh, the power to make sartorial uh, decisions, and uh, they are undermining her seriousness. Mm. And honestly, we know that uh, if we know that she's making a policy shift because she used to really uh, celebrate the Timbs, no. and now she's deciding. And so, basically, Vogue is saying. To her, we're
2: going back to Tim's.
0: We don't see you they're, They don't see her, right? right? They don't see her. They're invisibilizing her and they're depriving her of agency. And right. I think that we can honestly. You know, we can walk in Tim's and chew gum at the same time, if you will. (laughs) And clearly what we should be talking about is not just impeachment, not just the surveillance state, but but also baby blue converse. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) we're on to you. You're on notice, Vogue. Okay. nice try. But um, besides those really important stories, uh, what are you what are you thinking about?
1: So, you know, for, for my show for tomorrow, I have lined up, of course, I'm going to be talking about the attempted insurrection or I call it the diet coup of the government. Um, I'm going to be talking about um, the Twitter and basically every, you know, social media outlet giving Trump the death penalty effectively. So that I got that coming up and, you know, the normal, a bunch of other stuff. I'll be running my mouth for about two and a half hours as per usual.
0: And what are your thoughts on all of this?
1: Oh, geez. Which one do you want me to start with? You want me to start with the the uh, attempted coup?
0: Yeah. 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 So um,
1: so the reason I call it a diet coup is because, in my mind, a coup has to involve some people in the military at the highest levels of the government who actually make it so that, as Bhaskar Sankar said, you can grab the levers of power and keep it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So in other words, it had to have like some chance of success in order for it to be that. And I, you know, right. this was just like somebody on Twitter called them flabby suburbanites. You know, somebody, yeah. the, the guy, the guys look like they're from Duck Dynasty. And some it guy was like, off like Comic-Con. Them. It right,
2: looked like exactly. Comic-Con to me. A and lot that's
1: not, like and that's Comic-Con. Not, and I'm not trying to downplay the damage that they caused cause they caused a lot of damage and over 50 people are injured. And you know, there's I think five or six are dead. So this is nothing to like downplay or scoff at. Yeah. And my only point is um, there was no way in hell that this was going to work, not even close. And so, I guess the the next logical question is, well, what should happen next? Because the conversation is, some people were saying twenty fifth amendment, take Trump out by the twenty fifth amendment, because he was basically egging this on. Um, other people were saying, well, let's do impeachment. That's the big debate that's happening now. Right. Um. But interestingly, I you know I saw something earlier today in the Nation that uh, really caught my eye because I think it makes the most sense. I think the way to handle this is for Congress to invoke the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, section three and section five, which basically says, if you have a politician or somebody in the government who's effectively you know, egging on an insurrection or a rebellion, that you basically can ban them from ever holding public office again. And in order to do that, you don't need the exorbitant numbers that you need if you're doing impeachment. You only need a simple majority. So I think that that's what Uh, the house should do. And I think that that's what the Senate should do. And then we wouldn't have to worry about Trump 2024. um, And we wouldn't have to worry about Trump deciding, you know, whatever, wants to be a Senator or something like that. And listen, I do think that there should be consequences because even though he was talking on both sides of his mouth, so he was giving himself enough cover to say, no, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I wasn't really egging it on. We all know the spirit of what he was saying was egging it on. So he is guilty of that. And should there be some consequences for it? Absolutely. I think we have to do something.
2: I'm like, what What the hell do you remove a president for if not this? Like, why do we have it if not for this, if not for like, you know, uh, and, and I, my other thing about it is that, you know, you have to punish Trump because we're being very punitive with all the people that, you know, ended up walking around the Capitol. And I agree with you that. You know this was a very serious thing. and there were some very serious actors in there. There were people with zip ties and shit like that yep. and all weapons mm-hmm. and everything. But there were also a lot of people that just like walked with a crowd into the capitol because the police let them in there. You know what I mean? And <laughs> exactly and i and I, I think a little of what I'm seeing this week, and I'm like, I really do think we should punish these people with like the laws that we already have. I yeah, think right. It's like yeah. this big push to call them domestic terrorists and to call them anarchists. Like I've seen on the news is really what's scary to me. You know, I'm yeah, like, I, I, I don't think it's worth painting them all with the same domestic terrorist brush or even using the term domestic terrorist at all. And, you know, I think I'm like, Let's, let's differentiate between the people who were just like grandmas wandering around like it was yes. Comic-Con and then the actual real deal serious actors there, like there were pipe bombs placed. That is a separate thing then like then yeah. like literally i saw uh, i saw an interview with a guy who it appeared didn't have like had mental problems you know what right. i mean like, these are like sort of separate categories and i'm what i'm a little most worried about is this like rush to just like call them all domestic terrorists and give joe biden this edict to make a new you know patriot act right.
0: exactly yeah. correct no no agree, patriot
2: yeah. act 2.0 no
1: yeah, patriarchy. went no. out.
0: And we have like, the
2: laws that we have them
1: all. We have, we have laws, laws actually, yeah. Evan,
0: Evan Greer, who's joining us later, basically has this exact uh, critique, which is that we don't need to change surveillance laws. They that was not the issue. People knew this was going to happen, and this is going to be something that I think. And I, you know, I, I think that a lot of the left, when it comes to issues both of surveillance and of of uh, you know big tech. I think there is a uh, – I understand where it comes from. I think that there is a a problem – I just want to – everyone drink when I say problematic, seriously. <laughs> it's coconut water. But there's a problematic tendency to out of a – and I understand where it comes from. But to me, the kind of rush to expand um, either the surveillance state the, or the rush to expand big tech's power – or the police state, I understand where it comes from. I think it's misguided. Um, And I also think it's like, I think it's, I I have a problem with it on on the level of principle, but even if I didn't have a problem on it on the principle level, it's a problem on the strategic level. Because as we all know, the people who this will bite most in the ass is the left.
2: Sure.
1: Yes. Uh, and and I feel like no lefties who are in positions of power understand exactly what you just explained. And you're 100 percent correct.
0: Yeah. And I always and there's an interesting counter argument interest. I mean, when I say interesting, I'm being charitable. But a lot of people are like, well, who cares? Because they already go after the left. They already censor the left. They already surveil us. So why not just apply it to the other side? And it's like, well, you know, things can get worse. Yes, like, exactly. Things and get worse, and, and also get
1: worse. admitting you're a hypocrite isn't really a great argument either. Like, yeah, I'm a hypocrite, and so what? Like, well, that alone yeah, is not right. good.
3: <laughs> right. My other argument
2: specifically about the domestic terrorism label is that, like, you know, the term terrorism... Is a vague one at this point. Like, you know, yes, it has been used for people like the Oklahoma City bomber and, you know, uh, uh, in the past for domestic terrorists. But kind of since 2000, it's become this very vague catch all term for any non state affiliated, like hostile actor. And we've used it to do like torture to people and stuff like that. Like, I would say... Let's not use the term, let's try to not use the term terrorist and be more specific just in general, uh, uh, rather than try to like wokely expand like the use of terrorist because. to like to like make it even or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like I see so many people being like, you know, like if they were, yes, you know, uh, exactly. uh black, they'd be terrorists. I'm yeah. like, yeah. let's try not to call ev- anybody. Right, terrorists. right. The response yeah. to that
0: isn't let's make more people terrorists who are right. black. The response yes. is let's not make black people terrorists. Let's stop
1: talking That's, about yeah. yeah. Stop it's using the same the term thing with terrorist. the a yeah.
0: thing, right? I it's yeah. like, do.
1: I do come at it from a slightly different perspective. Like, I understand your point. I think you're 100% correct. I think the downsides of rushing to call terrorism are actually colossal, and it could lead something to, like, a Patriot Act 2.0. So point definitely taken. My view on it is more, like, I'm fine with using the term terrorist or domestic terrorist, but what I would implore people to do is at the very least give the conversation the nuance that's deserved so in other words whenever we talk about something that happens with black lives matter a rally or something like that and then elements of it become violent like the right would love to call that domestic terrorism and arrest everybody and throw the book at them whereas our response is always well hold on now 97 percent of the people at this rally were totally peaceful they're peaceful protesters so let's acknowledge that and then yes you can go after the three percent if they actually break laws or whatever by right. the same token the exact same thing should apply here that yes right. even though i do not like these people i don't politically agree with these people um there are people like you were describing before jack who just were not partaking in the violent elements of this and we got to be right. honest about that and yeah. upfront about that right. but go after the ones who did do it because agree, that, yeah. obviously there were very serious crimes that were committed for sure yeah
0: and there's actually footage of of people who again these are not people i agree with and would like agree with on, you know in the voting booth or anything but like there were people there who were who were like, calm down, calm down, like trying to to pacify the crowds. And I also think that what we should remember is that like Timothy McVeigh, like what did Bill Clinton do with that? He passed the effective, what was it, Anti-Terrorist Death Penalty Act, which just expanded the use of the death penalty. Right. And who does that apply to mostly? black people like right. it's not mm-hmm. it, you know it's it's a very it's something we really need to be cautious about and look at
1: okay, the social media censorship exact yeah. same issue we have yeah. here which is like you know people could cheer when it's their political opponents that's happening to, but then you did just agree to the principle and now immediately i mean red, the red scare podcast was banned you know yeah. i remember when we had this conversation the chapel trap house reddit was banned right and i was yeah. like well, of course this was going to happen because everybody was just cheering for censorship right. like five minutes ago.
0: But you know, what's frustrating is that a lot of the people who are cheering for that would uh, say that those people are fascists or uh, fascist <laughs> enablers. Like I, I look all oh, about like Chapo and then they would say it about. Yes. Now listen oh, to how wow. principled I am. Red scare called me congenitally boring. <sighs> uh but i still i don't you know what is it i may not agree with what you have to say about me being congenitally boring but i will fight to to the death to defend your right to tweet so there you go you're welcome Red Scare. but yeah they went after a bunch of women who were at a party a socialist party uh a dsa party or a jacobin party and then as sarah leonard said it like we were all upset. They were upset that they were not in an article that we were all upset we were in. Anyway, enough of enough pouring mm-hmm. tea. I'm sure Red Scare will come on either my show or Useful Idiots at some point. So, uh, again, that's my uh, Voltaire line on them. But no, but I mean, it, I always bring up the example of Palestinians and Palestinians, right. Palestinian critics of of Israel, and it's like if you, I don't, I don't care more. It's not like I care more about Q. Then, pal. I mean, I don't agree with them. I think they are dangerous and scary. It's just we have to look about look at how we are going to respond to this stuff as opposed well, we,
1: to, yeah. We don't even have to go that far. Rania Kalik, Abby Martin, Max Blumenthal, Ben Norton, these yes, are all yeah. people that at one point or another have experienced yeah, censorship.
0: Totally, yeah, yeah, exactly right. And they're right. And yeah.
1: just correct about stuff like they, they, they yeah. say things that are true and then they get consequences for it.
0: Totally, yeah. In fact, today someone I was inviting uh, Jason Stanley to potentially uh, have a debate with Daniel Bessner about fascism and coups and some rando, but I just think it's so telling. Was just like, I'd be careful because Katie and Matt Taibbi had on Max Blumenthal, and I was like, How dare you? I had him on recently, much more recently on my show. So why are you invisibilizing me? Anyway, but um, yeah, I agree, and it's a it's a it's a fraught subject. And again, I think that like you know, the whole thing about like the affluent affluenza debate, right? Like we should be pointing out that black lives matter. People would have been shot and killed. Yes. Um, we should be pointing out that in terms of just in general, like the criminal justice system, black people are, are uh, locked disproportionately, up. For things. Yeah. disproportionately, right? right. And the move and the push should be, and I think we talked about this last time, Jack a bit, but the push should be, let's highlight this. And fight for that, fight against that, not fight for more white people and more... Right, right. for treatment for everybody, stuff. not right. to yeah.
1: crack down harder on, on yeah. The yeah. right-wing I mean, white what people. What I'd here. say
2: also yeah. is that, you know, everybody was so astonished by what happened at the Capitol and the way the police acted at the Capitol. What is alarming about this is that a hard-right mob formed in the Capitol uh, uh, and had assistance and aid from the local police. Like, that yeah. is something mm-hmm. that, like has happened and will keep happening around the country and that's what's alarming about what happened on what wednesday i guess what happened on wednesday not that a bunch of people occupied a state building like i know that that was kind of the most arresting thing that we saw on television but actually the core of what was scary about wednesday is a hard right fascist mob forming with police assistance
0: right right yeah yeah yeah, because
2: they're there's a debate, an active debate that's, you know,
1: alive and well every time there's any sort of riot that that breaks out. It's like, what exactly are the tactics that we should all be in favor of? You know what I mean? Because obviously the cause... Matters. And so the tactics, in some instances, people might view more aesthetically certain tactics if the cause is more just. Sure, so I yeah. take your point. And those, yeah, those are all conversations that we've been, you know, having on the left for a really long time. And there is, there's is a lot of disagreement. Are, are you old school Malcolm X style or are you more MLK style? And I think we'll have those debates, you know. For until the end of time, pretty much, you
2: no, know, the vast majority of the people that were like wandering around the Capitol were like people that like rushed in with a crowd and got pushed in, like Comic Con people, you know what I mean? Like, I do think that there were real deal serious actors with them, but I think that like this, yeah, Zip Tie guy, remember Zip Tie you know, guy, like yeah. that guy is scary, like Zip Tie guy is scary was, to me, but he was found with Molotov cocktails too. If Some I remember found with Molotov cocktails, yeah. and there were pipe bombs found at the RNC, and apparently, the they DNC. were waiting for Trump's further orders. That's right. one thing I read too but which is kind of crazy. You know, it's like Cuz then he was... comes out and he
1: speaks out of both sides of his mouth and he like condemns them while also telling them they're very special people and they mean well. Yeah. And, right. Know.
0: What what do you think of the response? The response from uh, Trump. Of Trump, yeah. Yeah
1: well this see this and this gets into the broader conversation about impeachment versus why i think the way they should go is the 14th amendment as opposed to impeachment because it's classic trump trump is a classic as crystal ball said on the last episode of crystal kyle rounds. he's a classic abuser where like he goes right to that line and then reels it in and then goes right to that line and then reels it right and that's exactly what happened here so he he went out there and he said like we love our law enforcement we're going to keep our law enforcement safe we're going to respect our law enforcement and also this election was totally fraudulent and Totally stolen, and I understand why you guys are out there doing what you're doing. But definitely be good to our law enforcement. Right, but also, right. I don't totally why you're out there. So it's he says both things at the same time to give himself enough cover so that he could weasel out of actual accountability. So that when it does, if they were to try to impeach, they wouldn't get enough Republicans, and you know it would just all go up in smoke, and there'd be no consequences. So it, it's classic Trump, and this is what he's done on every issue forever, and he'll keep doing
0: it. A lot of people are saying like, oh, we're gonna get the impeachment instead of um, Medicare for all. Uh, this is, you know, we're going to get a hearing on that instead of Medicare for all, or people are dying and starving and out of work. Um, domestic violence is up all these things. Like what, where should we be prioritizing? What do you think should be? Well,
1: for me, I think, I think the number one priority right now should just be those $2,000 checks immediately pass those $2,000 checks. And Joe Manchin was just defecting. But if the Dems can get Hawley, which they probably can, then we could still pass it through budget reconciliation. So I would just do everything I can on that issue. Because honestly, that's why Georgia went the way it went. One of the biggest reasons why Georgia went the way it went is because the Democrats were out there aggressively saying, we're going to get you $2,000 checks. So if the Democrats go back on that, oof, that's, that's, oof, I, I shudder at the thought of it.
0: Right. And what are your thoughts about Georgia and how that happened and what the takes away, takeaways from that are?
1: Yeah, no, I think the takeaway is that, you know, if you give people an option to materially improve their lives and you're very straightforward about it, they're going to vote for you and they're going to help you. I mean, there's other aspects too, which is that uh, the the Trump fever broke, like all of his magic sort of gone. He's been in there a little too long. People are a little worn down and tired and like the Republican party post the election lost Biden. The whole thing has just been Trump whining and bitching and moaning about how it's a fraudulent election, even though he was slapped down in court a thousand times. So like, that that started defining Republican Party as like just this insane maniac leader, and so that hurt Leffler and Purdue. But then when the two thousand dollar check issue came came back around, and that you can thank Bernie, you could thank Hawley, and you can thank Trump for just dropping that bomb at the last minute yeah, to throw that yeah. in the conversation. Um, what happened was the Democrats picked that up and ran with it, and they were aggressively. Ar- Warnock was aggressively arguing for it, even Ossoff was aggressively arguing for it, and then Biden went to Georgia and gave a speech and said vote for us. We're giving you the $2,000 checks. So really, I think that analysis is the only analysis that makes sense, which is the Democrats promised something very tangible to help improve people's lives in the middle of a pandemic and a depression. And that's why they won.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. What's that woman's name? Spangler? Spanks. What's her name? The one who was like, uh, we lost because of the socialists. Heidi oh, who was that uh, you know that Spikes? terrible no name person who like literally nobody knew and who right. was like all talking right. about yeah she was the one who spoke to i don't know the hot take about that um and what do you think needs to happen moving forward like what are you pushing for organizing for uh rallying the troops around Spang Speng Spang Burger you know,
1: Spang uh, Burger yeah that sounds yeah. very weird <laughs> that yeah. name is very awkward um yeah, it is. so the the thing that um i think should be done next is that I think that the squad should get together, the Justice Democrats should get together, have a block of like a dozen Congress people. And I think they should come out and say, we're going to block every single bill unless and until Joe Biden signs five executive orders that we want. And those five executive orders could be legalizing marijuana or at the very least decriminalizing marijuana. It could be eliminating a certain amount of student loan debt, um, all things that he could do through executive order. And you you give him an ultimatum. You say, listen, if you, if you sign these executive orders, we're ready to do, you know, business. If you don't want to sign these executive orders, we'll just block every bill and we don't care about the consequences. So that's what they should do, but will they do it? Probably not. Because, you know, they need to be incredibly disciplined and they need to be willing to have the media, hate on them and leadership hate on them. And I don't think they want the media hating them. And I don't think they want leadership, you know, coming after them. So I, I don't think they'll do it, but that would be an example of the, the justice Democrats acting in the exact same way that the tea party acted when they had power and when they were a strong voting block and it would bring material change. I guarantee you, Joe Biden would sign at least one or two of those executive orders. If you played hardball with him, but you have to be willing to do it. Unfortunately, I don't see them do that yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, what, what, the, uh, oh, also, can you explain your relationship to the Justice Democrats?
1: Yeah, so I was one of the co-founders. It was myself, Jen uh, Kuger, Shoykot, uh, Chakrabarti, and Zach Exley. And yeah, I mean, the idea of it was basically like, let's do a Tea Party of the Left. And you know, uh, we were very fortunate, very lucky to to get a number of Justice Democrats elected um and we're still very proud of them they're still clearly our ideological allies on 98 percent of the issues but unfortunately in my opinion i don't i don't think they're necessarily holding true to the original mission which is a hostile takeover of the democratic party um i think they are once you get in washington dc you get washington dc brain which like makes you think if i go along to get along i can get better results and i think a lot of them are kind of unfortunately have Mm -hmm. gone down that path because they're corrupt, not because they're sellouts, not because of anything nefarious, but because they genuinely believe if I if I go along with leadership, then maybe I'll get scrums that'll end up helping down the yeah. road. And I just think it's the wrong approach.
0: Yeah, I think it's systemic. I mean, more than a, I and I, th- I personally think that's the better thing to, to focus on and you can apply pressure. But I actually think like I think it can backfire when you over personalize it, because then I think you alienate people who would otherwise support press 100 percent hundred kind percent of plays into yeah you're like kind of you're almost giving them cover to not do the right thing
1: that's exactly right and they get defensive
0: yeah they get defensive and other people get protective of them that's right anyway agreed anyway, uh thank you kyle so much
1: my pleasure guys it was fun talking to you you nice too to talk
0: to you. bye Hi. Okay, guys, this is so exciting. We have our next guest coming on and I will, uh, this woman, this lady, this woman, this jurist, this professor is very busy. So I'll get to some of the super chats after that, but I want to bring into the chat Zephyr Teachout. Welcome. Hi,
4: thank you so much for having me. Is my sound okay? Is it coming through? Yeah, it's great. great. It's great. Yeah,
0: it's great. great. Um so I uh, just wanted to basically I uh, I know you've limited time uh cuz you do a lot of things in the world what are your thoughts on uh what happened and also what has to happen in terms of impeachment and in terms of um big tech and yeah. uh mostly those two things yeah
4: yeah um well, I, I want to, I, I I think impeachment is absolutely essential, but I wanna, really want to focus our time on big tech, because okay. although there's been a little attention on this, and, and maybe you talked about this earlier in the program. Not um, so much. Okay. Yeah. But, um, uh w- it is absolutely urgent that we take this moment, and it's been urgent for some time. But I think what what's happened this past week should make it clear to a lot of people um, to uh, transform the business model of um, the social big social media companies, Facebook, YouTube, um, in in particular. Um, and you may remember seeing headlines about this a few years ago the um, the uh, horrific genocide in Myanmar. Um, and mm-hmm. Facebook's role yeah. and the way in which um, officials used Facebook's algorithm, which is not does not passively allow posts or uh, al- or, or uh, let you see posts in the order in which they are shared, but chooses. Mm-hmm what will be served up to you, in which officials in Myanmar used um, Facebook's algorithms which prioritize high conflict content conspiracy theories in this country, white nationalism, uh, ethnic violence, to um, incite and build support for horrific genocide there. And I think that felt very far away to a lot of people here. Um, It obviously was not very far away for the people there. But what we we know is that um, we are allowing the center of our communications infrastructure to be governed by a business model, which is designed to destroy democracy and the ability to come together and uh, govern ourselves. And I think a lot of people look at this as um, a kind of fact of nature. They mm-hmm. think, well, oh, that is what tech is. It's a sort of an organic understanding as opposed to a mechanical understanding. Um, this is absolutely a policy choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have this amazing uh, business model that we use for telephones, for instance, which is that you pay for the service of being able to use telephones, and you can have Congress using a long history of um, the public utility regulation is one way to talk about it or common carriage to say, hey, if you are if you are essential communications infrastructure, you can't have this business model because this business model is destroying uh, destroying us. And we'll get into conversation. But just one one point that relates to this is that we know from Facebook itself and Google uses the same business model. Um, that uh two-thirds of people who who joined extremist groups did so after Facebook recommended they do so. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if you're right. watching here, you say, Well, it, extremist groups haven't been recommended to me, but you've got to believe the data. This is basically mm-hmm. the business model says, Let's go mm-hmm. find the things that make the right. heart rate go up. They're the most conflict prone. Right. Um, and if that if that's true. And we and we know it's true. What that means is that what happened this week in um, in D.C., uh, what is happening with the deep disbelief, um, along with the white nationalism, the deep illegitimacy, um, uh, the sort of push for illegitimacy around peaceful transfer of power. All of that. It's not like pa- Facebook allowed some of it to passively happen. It was promoting that on its platform. Mm-hmm. And right. so, so I really think one of the key things that we have to be pushing for here is for um, Biden's administration um, to take the considerable power mm-hmm. and um, the executive branch has actually uh, uh, really outsized power when it comes to antitrust policy and. Um, and push within congress to um transform um uh, transform how we allow big tech to trod all over us and to be part of destroying democracy
2: mm-hmm. so yeah so i think this is a really good point zephyr uh, uh, and I'm 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 really glad you're here because i've seen so many people sort of using this to make the sort of free speech argument that, you know, uh, uh, I've even seen leftists sort of making this argument sort of following Trump being banned across all these platforms, you know, this kind of uh, uh, a free speech argument. And, you know, I guess what I would say about that is that that has been like a false argument from the very beginning. This was an argument made by these tech companies to allow them to like monetize. And, you know, this is really what it is about is like making money from extreme types of yes. content. And so yeah. I think it's really good. And I think, you know, uh, it is really good to refocus this conversation on what the actual issue is here, which is all these companies creating a monopoly on communication yeah. as a profit engine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Trump being banned off of these websites is not a problem to me. Uh, uh, that to me is just like these websites starting to, you know, reckon with uh, uh, the like the reality of this, which is, you know, that like they have profited off of like this form of speech for uh, a very long time, and I agree with you that we need to focus our energy on taking down these companies uh, yeah. uh, rather than you know arguing for the president's rights to be on them or something.
4: Well, I, th- I think again we tend to naturalize it and treat it like this right. isn't something we we can have the kind of communications infrastructure we want. Um, uh, designing and supporting a decentralized communications infrastructure has been central <laughs> to. Mm-hmm to a- allowing for the possibility of a democracy. And so there's a, sort of two different models that people use. One is the platform and the other is to say they're just like any other journalistic publication, but they're trying to have the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. And they are they, they don't really mind if we see them as the leaders and we're spending all our time begging them. So I, mm-hmm. I, I have very little patience with Zuckerberg, <laughs> very little patience yeah. with with YouTube, but I don't think our energy should be focused on begging them, to act, but really understand that it is Congress's job to make sure that they do not have the power that they do, because whatever Zuckerberg does, he's not going to give up this quasi-King-like power um mm-hmm. that he has right now uh, on his own that is congress's job and the political will is there and this is one of these areas where there is, there's sort of very weird uh, or maybe not weird um uh, uh very powerful um uh, uh cross-partisan alliances so yeah, you see a lot of Republicans who are not support Republicans in office who are not supporting this. Make them vote on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is I, like I, I definitely mean, something to push I, the vote. No. And, and 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 I guess just one other one other point. I mean, my my focus this week has to be on just like understanding that when you're thinking who is responsible here. Mm. Imagine if you had ten years. Imagine from 2010, beginning of the Tea Party, 2009, being the Tea Party to now, if. The core social media companies, YouTube and Facebook, had a different business model. My belief is that we would not have seen what we saw this week at the Capitol. We would not see the numbers of people who don't believe in the election. You you, you have a totally different incentive instead of... Um uh, Facebook and YouTube having the incentive to push conspiracy theories to the top. So, like thinking about what that has meant and going to the deep, deep disease at the heart of our communications infrastructure is so essential because no number of, 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 of band-aids are going to mm-hmm. solve it. Um, but I gotta also say it's also important as um uh as a form of um of stimulus. Because the other thing that that Facebook and Google do is they just suck money out of the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Journalists know this, obviously. But um, content producers, small businesses, small businesses who who cannot be heard without advertising on Facebook and and Google, um, what we know from the recent lawsuits, but it's a no-brainer, is – Facebook and Google are jacking up their prices. Some of your, right. your, your community um, uh, uh, restaurants that are dying right now without federal support are also having to shovel over money to these monopolies that are standing in this choke point role. So it's essential democratic policy and it's good economic policy at the same time.
0: It seems like there's this, a parallel between the way that people talk about like capitalism as this free market thing where there's no intervention um, and that's just the way it is. It's the rule of, of nature, as you were saying, they naturalize it, right? And and the stuff with Facebook and, and uh, you know other, Tech companies, where it's like, it's not that they're just not intervening, like you said, right? They are yeah. intervening, but there's right. this like funny, like you know, Adam Smith delusion in both capitalism and in, in tech stuff. So, could you could you just talk about like what this would look like um, uh, if they how 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 you know politicians could stop them from intervening and what it would look like? Yeah. So. With, let's just take Facebook. You, um, first
4: of all, it's really important to uh, break it up from Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, I mean, this is such an openly lawless company. When you have basically every state AG going after them, you know, one, that it's politically popular, and two, they're breaking a lot of laws and they're doing <laughs> pretty openly. But, but that, that kind of breakup is important. So at moments where there's, um, where, where Facebook is promoting certain things, you can say, hey, I don't like this toxicity on this site. I'm going to move somewhere else. And that's not a real option right now if you want to be, um, if you want to be heard. But the second thing is treat it like a public utility. And I, um, I wrote with um, Sibyl Ram in a piece last year about how we could use public utility regulation. And what would, that would mean is public utility regulation regulates the business model. So you basically say you can't use targeted ads. That's one. Right. So instead, um, you would be charged you know, between $1 and $15 uh, a month uh, to use a social media service like you use your phone service. But instead of having the heart of our communications infrastructure be preferring toxicity, preferring white nationalism, it would be... Um, it would have to be neutral and would also then have to take all comers in a neutral way. So think of it a little bit like a railroad for communications. Um, and one of the things that would do is open up more opportunities for local journalism, because, I mean, this is there's, this is a complex uh, machine. And I, I do want to stay away from organic metaphors, because that tends to make us just throw up our hands and say, well, Unless we fix uh, you know, the profit motive, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> but the truth is that there's there's actually a lot within the existing system that we can do. So um, so basically common carriage or public utility. It has to treat all um, all comers equally and can't use the targeted ad business model. And then also can't own different producers who rely on the site. So there's a conflict of interest. Those are, those are the key elements here. And the amazing thing is that in um, the report that just came out of the House Antitrust Subcommittee, they're advocating for this kind of model for social media. So it it's one of those areas where It's it really is just going to take Biden and and leadership to push it forward. It's possible. It feels like we're just it's too late. But the truth is, it's really dangerous. We have to act now. And as Jack was saying, treating it in terms of episodic, like who is banned and who isn't banned is missing the whole point. It's like the the, the disease is the business model. The disease is the business model. Mm -hmm. And Congress's job is communications infrastructure, you know, like having a decentralized communications infrastructure, like nothing. uh, Clearly, that's Congress's job. That's what the first Congress is doing. And that's what the Congress is doing in the 1970s. And that's what Congress should be doing now.
0: Yeah. Uh, And and you think that... uh uh there's any hope i mean you're you're, you seem to be somewhat hopeful while saying it looks like it's too late but you're saying it's not too late what can people do because you know something you say in your book break them up which is a great book is like don't feel bad about not boycotting amazon no because that's just not an effective way to go about it uh it does that apply and that applies to other like to facebook so right
4: youtube is a huge problem
0: yeah but i
4: wouldn't say Hey, get off YouTube and don't have any don't have any right. audience right. members you need it, the audience members. The it's world. like saying get off the roads but don't <laughs> right. complain yeah, exactly. about the, yeah. the potholes in the roads. Right. So, right. it's just that our habit has become so deeply like you may think Oh, you're not neoliberal, but the the sort of boycott instinct, like mm-hmm. first, you're consumer first, is like, <laughs> oh, if I have a problem with Facebook or YouTube, right. my first job is my intimate, personal, you right. know, it's like my relationship with God first is through my right. relationship with yeah. YouTube, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to say, call Chuck Schumer. He's the new majority leader, right? He's holding the, he's holding the cards here. Um, I also think sometimes,
2: you know, the consumer choice thing makes it so that people are like, all right, I've done something. I've done my part. And it's like, it's actually better to keep ordering from Amazon, but force Chuck Schumer to act on them. I was going to ask Zephyr, what do you think about like Section 230, uh, uh, in this world where, you know, uh, uh, we had publicly, you know, public utility, uh, right. uh, online social media, you know, w- and in the short term, you know, what do you think about Section 230 and repealing it or versus and, uh, reforming it?
0: Can you explain to listeners what that is? So, there's, a, there's a basic idea
4: in law, which I find very compelling and I think applies here, which is that something that is promoted not merely allowed. Right. You have responsibility uh, and you're liable for. So like if an innkeeper actively, I mean I, all these sort of law school analogies are also like weird and <laughs> right. you know, 1930s, you know, it's yeah. something. A but I'm gonna use a bar if a bar wench. Yeah. Yeah. If you have an innkeeper who actively like sprays the sidewalk with water on an icy day and then somebody comes along and slips right that's really different than an innkeeper who's like well, I don't know I don't care about the sidewalk once you're inside you're inside and right. so the sort of the choice to actively do something creates liability and so i would apply the same principle here which is that for promoted posts Um, liability should exist. And so the effect there then would be to discourage the promotion, you know, basically require more awareness around the promotion of posts. I I really think the more key thing is, is starting with the business model. I feel like we're doing sort of Patches, right. but I um, and I, I a lot of times when people are talking about two thirty, they're lying. Just to be clear, especially on the right, 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 yes. um, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. it's it's a, it's a it, that's why it's a weird area to sort right. of enter briefly. Well, it's also such a weird
2: thing, you know, for the right to even talk about it because I'm like, you know, Section two thirty would mean that these companies have to moderate what you right. are saying. They would have yeah. to moderate your political ads, but whatever.
4: <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the the deeper. Point here. Well, a, a sort of a historical way to think about it is that when journalism started being penny press journalism, working class journalism, which is absolutely essential, you know, journalism that is paid for by not by wealthy investors who are waiting to see whether their ship's uh, cargo was not damaged or not, but um, journalism, uh, you know, working class journalism, popular uh, and local journalism in the um, mid to late nineteenth century. A lot of the first stuff was filled with lies, just lies. Like there's people on the moon with wings was one of the most popular early publications that went through several different iterations. And the way that law developed is said, okay, is say, okay, well, if you are going to hold yourself out as a journalist, you're going to be responsible. Right. Mm. So that otherwise we're just going to have lots of, false stories out there. And this is, just goes back to the beginning of the conversation, which is the platforms are trying to have it both ways. They're trying to claim as a protection, oh, we're just like journalists, but they don't have the obligations that journalists do. Mm -hmm. And that I think, I actually don't want them to be journalists. I think it's better for them to be platforms, but to be neutral in public utilities and then, Mm -hmm. and then actually support more journalism. I don't want, you know, Facebook journalism.
0: Right. Right. And any other final message you want to tell people?
4: Well, I mean, it's a strange moment because we're beginning the Biden administration. And the one thing I will say that gives me, not the one thing, but one thing that gives me some hope is that um, in the last three weeks, we have seen Biden move on two big things in a big way, on the $2,000 checks and on impeachment. And I've always thought Biden's a bit of a question mark, you know, that like, Um, But the fact that he's moved so quickly twice, even before being president, means that those of us who are activists and pushing know we have our marching orders. This is an administration that uh, may not say it likes to listen, but is but is uh, sensitive to grassroots activity, which is why it's really, really important to be pushing, um, uh, pushing a very aggressive economic agenda and and accountability. Mm -hmm.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Zephyr. Definitely come back on. Thanks That's so much awesome. for having me. Of course. Have a good night. All right. By the way, I can already hear the people in the chat that I'm not looking at. Although, Jack, you got called out. That's almost like we see you looking at the chat. Oh, but, me? Yeah, Never. I know. But Never. I just want Never. you to know you can agree with what Zephyr just said and also hate Biden. I want it, I, This is a space. I'm holding the space for that idea, which you know is true he's not saying that biden is good for it wants to to do the right thing he's yeah
2: i would say even and I had a lot of, I thought it was great talking to Zephyr. I actually do disagree with Zephyr w- with what she said at the end there. And I think it's totally okay for us to have different perspectives on that. I still think it's worth pushing for what's worth pushing for, because what the fuck else are we going to do? What else can do? we do? Yeah. So yeah. I just, I disagree with her, but I still, I have a lot of respect for her and it was great to talk to her.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think you're basic. yeah. I mean, I don't, the thing is she's such a lawyer that she's, I don't even think she's making no. as much of a normative moral. But I do,
2: I do really agree with her uh uh, about the social media thing and in reframing this conversation because i i honestly think that we've like lost the plot a little bit on this this conversation about trump uh uh getting pulled off of social media and stuff like that and in and i think that we are on the left now using the like false argument that the social media companies made like to make profit for themselves like this never was an expression of free speech like these yeah, being yeah. on these platforms never was speech it never was even censorship it's like these have always been to sell products the fucked up thing here is that we're you know that we have ceded a monopoly of communication to these private companies that they're using it to sell products like not that like this bastion of free speech you know removed uh, yeah. uh, fucking carnival barker donald trump from it
0: Right. Yeah. Decided to,
2: decided that they would no longer profit from Donald Trump's speech.
0: Right. Uh, man, Jack, you're the reason why everyone doesn't have health Oh, care, what, is it? what is what what are you hear. You? that's here? I think what I that's being, hear. I think that's sarcasm. No, no, I do no. believe that's sarcasm. Me, we are having back um return guest Shahid Buttar, who is a an activist. Uh He challenged Nancy Pelosi. He's a real nerd, constitutional lawyer. Poet. I hope it's okay I call him a nerd. I say that I'm nerd positive. And making her Katie Helper we Show. De- took back
2: the word, you know, i took, took back, back, yeah. it. I took
0: back, it reclaimed, yeah. And making her Katie Helper Show debut is Evan Greer, a Boston-based musician, activist, writer. She's a deputy director of Fight for the Future, a digital rights group that advocates for a free and open internet and against policies and practices of censorship, invasion of privacy, free speech, and increasing reach of the surveillance state. And she writes for places like the Washington Post, the Guardian, Wired, and BuzzFeed News. Okay, so let us bring these fine people into the chat. Evan, Shahid, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Hey, Katie. Great to see you, to see you Evan. I haven't yeah, seen
0: in a while. I want to start, start I think with, I think you with you, Evan, because you, because have, you a have a great, great piece, piece that you wrote for Fast Company. I always want to say Fast Times, like Fast Times at Richmond High. And it says, uh, I'm just going to quote you if that's okay. Um, More money, weapons, and technology in the hands of the Department of Homeland Security, an agency complicit in human rights abuses long before Trump took office won't stop the rising threat of right-wing violence. Instead, it will be used to suppress legitimate dissent and disproportionately target black and brown activists, Muslims, immigrant communities, and social movements that effectively challenge systemic injustice and corporate power. More specifically, lawmakers should reject attempts to exploit the crisis Trump created to further one of Trump's top goals, gutting Section 230, a foundational law that makes it possible for websites to host the content, post videos, photos, memes, and opinions of ordinary people. So can you, uh, unlike the uh, su- surveillance state, which we don't want to be expanded, can you expand on that? <laughs>
3: For sure, Katie, and you know, I think there's there's multiple different things to unpack there. So I'll try not to ramble so that we can get other folks in as well. But you know, I think the first thing I want to say is this is not a slippery slope argument, right? I hear a lot of folks out there saying, "Oh, you know, this is a slippery slope argument." No, this is an argument that is directly informed by the lived experiences of marginalized people in this country who have been on the receiving end of an oppressive surveillance state that puts people's lives in danger, that puts people's family members in prison, that mm-hmm. has gotten people killed. Right. So this is not about kind of waving our hands and saying, oh, but what if they go too far? And then my friends get censored. This is an actual, uh, you know, something that we need to grapple with um, and that we can't ignore. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the, the thrust of my piece is that we can't combat Individual groups of violent white supremacists by doubling down on policies that are based in white supremacy mm-hmm. and uphold white supremacy. Um, so, expanding mass government surveillance programs, which have been historically weaponized primarily against communities of color, immigrant communities, Muslims, uh, activists that challenge uh, powerful corporations, activists that challenge the police and the government. Um, You know, expanding the government's role, uh, or for example, passing a new uh, domestic terrorism statute, where we've seen historically that such laws um, criminalize again those same folks that I was just talking about. Um, Those types of policies are not going to do anything to prevent another display of white supremacist violence, which is what we saw in the Capitol this week. Um, In fact, they will be enacting white supremacist violence on the communities that have already been the most harmed by this administration and by uh, Trump's supporters and their rhetoric, Mm -hmm. right? So for me, this is not sort of a um, trade-offs or, uh, you know, Uh, kind of a false equivalency. This is literally about not um, pushing for policies that actually um, harm the very same communities that those folks that stormed in the Capitol were trying to uh, silence and disenfranchise.
0: Moral kind of like principled arguments aside, there's a very clear strategic argument about uh, the concrete, concrete ways this will be enacted, right? Uh, this isn't just a question of where you fall on principles. It's actually a kind of a, a question of interest.
3: For sure. I mean, I think it, it's certainly both. And and my headphone fell out for a second there, oh, so okay. I might have missed slight context. But I, to dive in on the, kind of the second piece of my op-ed, um, which I think speaks to what you're talking about, let's, let's quickly touch on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a great example where we can and should have robust debates about things like deplatforming, and what is the responsibility of big tech companies and their surveillance capitalist business model or things like algorithmic amplification what role does that play in assisting white supremacists and fascists with recruitment and amplifying some of the worst content on the internet um, in this never-ending quest for advertising dollars right Mm -hmm. those are conversations we should have and we can have reasonable disagreements about where the lines are or what the best policies are to address the harms that are clearly happening, right? We also can't be the party of hands off the internet, everything is fine, and pretend that there aren't real harms that are being done by these massive corporations and their business practices. Um, That said, we should all be able to agree that ripping up Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act isn't going to fix any of those harms. Sort of wherever you land, whether you think that big tech companies engage in too much moderation and are censoring legitimate political speech, or you think they're not doing enough, and they should be taking down more accounts Um, either way. Ripping up Section 230 won't fix the problem that you have with these companies, right? And so I think this has been a huge, in, in a lot of ways, distraction um, from some of the things that we really need, which I would argue are finally passing a strong federal data privacy law that would ban the type of uh, data harvesting and micro targeting that these companies use to sort of algorithmically inject um, uh, some of the worst content into the minds of the people who are most susceptible to it and sort of gives them their monopoly power power. Actually enforcing existing antitrust laws, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a host of other options that we have to rein in the power of these companies to break up their monopoly and gatekeeper control, um, rather than destroying a law that fundamentally is at the core of what enables all the best aspects of the internet, um, the parts of it that are actually transformative and have given a voice to many people who have been historically silenced um, in, uh, you know, in our society and through mainstream media in the past. So, uh, you know, I guess that's my main main point. It's like, let's have a real debate about deplatforming. Let's stop fucking (laughs) like saying bullshit about Section 230. Um, And I would point folks to, you know, many resources and explainers because in the end, that's one thing, you know, I want to approach the show tonight and our conversations about this with some some humility because I think there is a degree to which like, I don't know, like I don't genuinely know, um, you know, whether... If I were sitting behind the controls at a company like Twitter, I what I would think is actually the best thing to do about deplatforming someone like Donald Trump. Um, I think there's really valid arguments to be made on a number of sides about you know where are the lines, when do we approach that like fire in a crowded theater, um, you know, kind of carve out that we all understand to be built into the First Amendment. Um, but I do know that ripping up Section 230 isn't gonna make this situation any better. So I think that's like a good thing for anyone out there who cares about this to start with. So we can like push that aside so we can actually have the real conversation about um, what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing.
0: So you're saying let's table and pause and there's a lot to talk about and we shouldn't like be scared off of talking about the other stuff about platforming. But what we can all agree on that's not controversial or shouldn't be controversial is this issue. Section Um, 230
2: don't repeal Section 230 because this allows for, you know, basically, you know, what would happen if they repealed Section 230 is it would allow them to, you know, uh, uh, sue Facebook over ads and stuff like that. But then also, you know, if a website was hosting leftists and that, you know, people would be held too far accountable for, uh, uh, you know, what goes on on their services. And that that goes all the way to every type of service on the Internet. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, I'll say one last thing on that. And I want to make sure we, we get shot in in others. But, you know, one of the most likely scenarios that I think we are likely to see in the coming weeks would be Democrats to push a piece of legislation that creates a carve out in Section 230 for speech that promotes, quote unquote, domestic terrorism right mm-hmm. which on its face sounds perfectly reasonable okay we're saying platforms you know are protected from liability but if people are straight up on there calling for domestic terrorism then like maybe they should be liable that you know that's sort of the argument behind it what that would do is it would make it so that any racist asshole could sue facebook anytime they allow someone to for example post a video of police violence and argue that posting that video of police acting violently is inciting domestic terrorism, right? Um, so anything like that, I think, would end up actually crushing the anti-racist and anti-fascist social movements that we clearly desperately need now more than ever. So I just to make it more concrete, this isn't just about will they repeal it. I think we're much more likely to see kind of these narrow attempts to create carve-outs in it. Um, but many of those carve-outs could be just as devastating as repealing the law entirely. And I think that one is very likely to be coming um, in you know sooner rather than later. And we need to be ready to wholeheartedly oppose it uh, and, again, push for real solutions and real community responses to this very real threat of organized white supremacist violence that is amplified by big tech companies' business models.
0: Can one of you uh, just give a summary of what it is? Section uh, 230 is.
5: You're the lawyer. It's a corporate (laughs) liability shield. It's a shield for platforms, and it protects platforms that host user-generated content from liability based on content that they, the companies, did not produce. And that sounds like, on its face, a liability shield for the companies, but it's actually a content moderation shield for the users. Because by saying that companies won't be liable for user-generated speech, while companies remain at liberty to moderate content on their platforms, because they're not state actors, so they're not subject to First Amendment protections, they can more or less do whatever they want. As long as 230 is in place, they don't have an incentive to actively police user speech. So what removing 230 would do, that's the you know, scenario that Evan's uh, noting, whether it's repealing or carving it out, any erosions to 230 would basically invite companies to more aggressively police, censor, suspend, and ban user-generated content. And that's a huge problem here. A lot of people are responding to any number of legitimate concerns, including, for instance, the completely unreasonable power of tech companies. And it is absolutely true that corporate content moderation decisions are entirely arbitrary. And I would say, frankly, that the ban of Donald Trump demonstrates it. I don't have a problem with it, particularly because he incites violence. And so that's not constitutionally protected speech, nor is Twitter a state actor. But the point of the arbitrariness absolutely sticks because it's not like he just started inciting violence. He's been doing this for years. Mm -hmm. So why now? Why today? Why... Based on a series of tweets that themselves aren't even nearly as incendiary as half the other things he's posted, right. it just it speaks to precisely the fact that the corporate platforms are run amok; they can do whatever they want, and and if we and two thirty is basically the last vestige of not giving them a reason to do everything they want or everything that the government might want.
0: I wanted to start, I think, with you, Edmond, because you have a great piece that you wrote for Fast Company. I always want to say Fast Times, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and it says. Uh, I'm just going to quote you if that's okay. Um, More money, weapons, and technology in the hands of the Department of Homeland Security, an agency complicit in human rights abuses long before Trump took office, won't stop the rising threat of right wing violence. Instead, it will be used to suppress legitimate dissent and disproportionately target Black and Brown activists, Muslims, immigrant communities, and social movements that effectively challenge systemic injustice and corporate power. More specifically, lawmakers should reject attempts to exploit the crisis Trump created to further one of Trump's top goals, gutting Section 230, a foundational law that makes it possible for websites to host the content, posts, videos, photos, memes, and opinions of ordinary people. So, can you, uh, unlike the uh, su- surveillance state, which we don't want to be expanded, can you expand on that?
3: <laughs> For sure, Katie. And, you know, I think there's there's multiple different things to unpack there. So I'll try not to ramble so that we can get other folks in as well. But, you know, I think the first thing I want to say is this is not a slippery slope argument, right? I hear a lot of folks out there saying, oh, you know, this is a slippery slope argument. No, this is an argument that is directly informed By the lived experiences of marginalized people in this Mm -hmm. country who have been on the receiving end of an oppressive surveillance state that puts people's lives in danger, that puts people's family members in prison, that Mm -hmm. has gotten people killed, right? So this is not about kind of waving our hands and saying, oh, but what if they go too far and then my friends get censored? This is an actual, uh, you know, something that we need to grapple with. Um, And that we can't ignore. Um, And, you know, I think the the thrust of my piece is that we can't combat individual groups of violent white supremacists by doubling down on policies that are based in white supremacy and Mm -hmm. uphold white supremacy. Um, So expanding mass government surveillance programs, which have been historically weaponized primarily against communities of color, immigrant communities, Muslims, uh, activists that challenge Uh, powerful corporations, activists that challenge the police and the government, Um, you know, expanding the government's role, uh, or for example, passing a new uh, domestic terrorism statute, where we've seen historically that such laws um, criminalize, again, those same folks that I was just talking about. Um, Those types of policies are not going to do anything to prevent another display of white supremacist violence, which is what we saw in the Capitol this week. Um, In fact, they will be enacting white supremacist violence on the communities that have already been the most harmed by this administration and by uh, Trump's supporters and their rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Right. So for me, this is not sort of a um, trade offs or, uh, you know, Uh, kind of a false equivalency. This is literally about not um, pushing for policies that actually um, harm the very same communities that those folks that stormed in the Capitol were trying to uh, silence and disenfranchise.
0: Moral kind of like principled arguments aside, there's a very clear strategic argument about uh, the concrete, concrete ways this will be enacted, right? Uh, this isn't just a question of where you fall on principles. It's actually a kind of a, a question of interest.
3: For sure. I mean, I think it, it's certainly both. And, and my headphone fell out for a second there, oh, so okay. I might have missed slight context. But I, to dive in on the, kind of the second piece of my op-ed, um, which I think speaks to what you're talking about, let's, let's quickly touch on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a great example where we can and should have robust debates about things like deplatforming. And what is the responsibility of big tech companies and their surveillance capitalist business model or things like algorithmic amplification? What role does that play in assisting white supremacists and fascists with recruitment and amplifying some of the worst content on the internet um, in this never-ending quest for advertising dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Those are conversations we should have, and we can have reasonable disagreements about where the lines are or what the best policies are to address the harms that are clearly happening, right? We also can't be the party of hands off the internet, everything is fine, and pretend that there aren't real harms that are being done by these massive corporations and their business practices. Um, that said, we should all be able to agree that ripping up Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act isn't going to fix any of those harms. Sort of wherever you land, whether you think that big tech companies engage in too much moderation and are leg- censoring legitimate political speech, or you think they're not doing enough and they should be taking down more accounts, um, either way, Ripping up Section 230 won't fix the problem that you have with these companies, right? And so I think this has been a huge, in in a lot of ways, distraction um, from some of the things that we really need, which I would argue are finally passing a strong federal data privacy law that would ban the type of uh, data harvesting and micro targeting that these companies use to sort of algorithmically inject um, uh, some of the worst content into the minds of the people who are most susceptible to it and sort of gives them their monopoly power actually enforcing existing antitrust laws mm-hmm. uh, you know a, a host of other options that we have to rein in the power of these companies to break up their monopoly and gatekeeper control um, rather than destroying a law that fundamentally is at the core of what enables all the best aspects of the internet um, the parts of it that are actually transformative and have given a voice to many people who have been historically silenced um, in uh, you know in our society and through mainstream media in the past. So, uh, you know, I guess that's my main main point. It's like, let's have a real debate about deplatforming. Let's stop fucking (laughs) like saying bullshit about Section 230. Um, And I would point folks to, you know, many resources and explainers, because in the end, that's one thing, you know, I want to approach the show tonight and our conversations about this with some humility, because I think there is a degree to which, like, I don't know, like, I don't genuinely know, um, you know, whether if I were sitting behind the controls at a company like Twitter, I what I would think is actually the best thing to do about deplatforming someone like Donald Trump. Um, I think there's really valid arguments to be made on a number of sides about, you know, where are the lines? When do we approach that, like, fire in a crowded theater, um, you know, kind of carve-out that we all understand to be built into the First Amendment? Um, but I do know that ripping up Section Two Thirty isn't going to make this situation any better. So I think that's like a good thing for anyone out there who cares about this to start with. So we can like push that aside so we can actually have the real conversation about um, what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing.
0: So you're saying let's table and pause and there's a lot to talk about and we shouldn't like be scared off of talking about the other stuff about platforming. But what we can all agree on that's not controversial or shouldn't be controversial is this issue. Section Um,
2: 230 don't repeal Section 230 because this allows for, you know, basically, you know, what would happen if they repealed Section 230 is it would allow them to, you know, uh, uh, sue Facebook over uh, ads and stuff like that. But then also, you know, if a website was hosting leftists and that, you know, people would be held too far accountable for, uh, uh, you know, what goes on on their services. And that that goes all the way to every type of service on the Internet. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, I'll and, say one last thing on that. Yeah. And I want to make sure we, we, we get shot in and others. But, you know, one of the most likely scenarios that I think we are likely to see in the coming weeks would be Democrats to push a piece of legislation that creates a carve out in Section 230 for speech that promotes, quote unquote, domestic terrorism right mm-hmm. which on its face sounds perfectly reasonable okay we're saying platforms you know are protected from liability but if people are straight up on there calling for domestic terrorism then like maybe they should be liable that you know that's sort of the argument behind it what that would do is it would make it so that any racist asshole could sue facebook anytime they allow someone to for example post a video of police violence and argue that posting that video of police acting violently is inciting domestic terrorism, right? Um, so anything like that i think would end up actually crushing the anti-racist and anti-fascist social movements that we clearly desperately need now more than ever so i just to make it more concrete this isn't just about will they repeal it i think we're much more likely to see kind of these narrow attempts to create carve outs in it um, but many of those carve outs could be just as devastating as repealing the law entirely and i think that one is very likely to be coming um, in you know sooner rather than later and we need to be ready to to wholeheartedly oppose it uh, and again, push for real solutions and real community responses to this very real threat of organized white supremacist violence that is amplified by big tech companies' business models.
0: Can one of you uh, just give a summary of what it is? Section uh, 230 is.
3: You're the lawyer.
5: It's (laughs) a corporate liability shield. It's a shield for platforms and it protects platforms that host user generated content from liability based on content that they, the companies did not produce. And that sounds like, on its face, a liability shield for the companies, but it's actually a content moderation shield for the users. Because by saying that companies won't be liable for user generated speech, while companies remain at liberty to moderate content on their platforms, because they're not state actors, so they're not subject to First Amendment protections, they can more or less do whatever they want. As long as 230 is in place, they don't have an incentive to actively police user speech. So what removing 230 would do that's the you know, scenario that Evan's uh, noting, whether it's repealing or carving it out, any erosions to 230 would basically invite companies to more aggressively police, censor, suspend, and ban user-generated content. And that's a huge problem here. A lot of people are responding to any number of legitimate concerns, including, for instance, the completely unreasonable power of tech companies. And it is absolutely true that corporate content moderation decisions are entirely arbitrary. And I would say, frankly, that the ban of Donald Trump demonstrates it. I don't have a problem with it, particularly because he incites violence. And so that's not constitutionally protected speech, nor is Twitter a state actor. But the point of the arbitrariness absolutely sticks because it's not like he just started inciting violence. He's been doing this for years. Mm -hmm. So why now? Why today? Why based on a series of tweets that themselves aren't even nearly as incendiary as half the other things he's posted. Right. It just it speaks to precisely the fact that the corporate platforms are run amok. They can do whatever they want and, and if we and 230 is basically the last vestige of not giving them a reason to do everything they want or everything that the government might want. You know, as we're talking particularly Evan mentioned the possibility of another carve out to section 230 and we have seen some already. SESTA and FOSTA were carve-outs to the law that have had demonstrable consequences. People have been placed at physical risk because they've lost access to online platforms that particularly sex workers used to use to stay safe at work. And when we place people at harm through ham-fisted, ill-considered, half-baked legislation, we should learn from it rather than double down on those unforced errors. And a particular carve-out that would address for instance content that could be read to promote domestic terrorism just to be clear here domestic terrorism has been held in the past i'm thinking of the Tariq Mahana case to include academic translation of arabic texts and if the designation of what is terrorism is just random you know it's included taking pictures at factory farms it's included breaking monkeys out of labs all those mm-hmm. things are domestic terrorism according to our government and so you know people might be responding to wednesday But adopting these kinds of overbroad laws does no one any good. And again, there are real legitimate concerns here. I'd love particularly to develop on the theme that Evan raised about antitrust measures that can actually strike at the legitimate concern that people have in a way that better addresses them without creating these unnecessary risks that repealing parts of Section 230 would.
0: Yeah. And can you explain, sorry, that case about translation? Because I, I don't know what that is. And I, 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 yeah. I met maybe, maybe others don't.
3: Sure. I, yeah. I can jump in on that. Please, um, go ahead. So I, and I, you know, I, I worked on this campaign and in fact, uh, our good friends at Breitbart and the daily caller wrote extensive articles about, uh, my involvement, um, in this, uh, civil liberties campaign, uh, in my early twenties. Um, but this was a case of a Muslim man, uh, from the Boston area, Tariq Mahena, um, who was charged and convicted with material support for terrorism. Um, and one of the primary pieces of evidence, um, or kind of, uh, co- you know, core, uh, Uh, accusations of this charge was that he translated a number of old Islamic texts, posted them on the internet. Some of them were then shared by organizations that the US government deems to be terrorist organizations. Um, And so they charged him with material support for basically engaging in academic translation of religious texts. Um, But really, it was about him being a politically active Muslim man um, Mm. who was speaking out. Uh, at that time, and this has happened, you know, historically a number of times. Right, uh, material support for terrorism has been used to target politically active Muslims in the U.S. Uh, you know, a number of times since nine eleven, and I think it's this is really important too because we often think of this uh, or, or, you know, there's a lot of navel gazing happening right now on, on Twitter and among. Wait, uh, hold on you know, one second. Hold on. Oh, sure.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. What were you saying? Oh, <laughs> um...
3: <laughs> yes. We're all gazing at our navel. I'm actually gazing at my hoodie. I have to shout out that my hoodie actually has the text of section 230. Oh, uh, Communication wow. Typing <laughs> the, <laughs> the fight for yeah, the I I future. director. No, but uh, you know, for, you know, we, there's a lot of navel-gazing happening among particularly white leftists in the U.S. right now, um, and I just think it needs to be said over and over again that the people who are deplatformed on social media most often are politically active Muslims and Arabs who live outside the U.S., whose speech is caught up in automated removal Um, of this kind of anti-terrorist automated removal programs that are shared across um, the four or five major web platforms, right? And Jillian York at EFF has written extensively about this and others. Um, And then in the US, the people who are systematically de-platformed from social media the most are sex workers, right? Mm -hmm. And so I understand, you know, people... Like to cheer on deplatforming when it happens to those who arguably really, really genuinely do deserve it. Um, but again, this is not a slippery slope argument. We need to and must contend with the reality. That there is a tremendous amount of harmful deplatforming happening of legitimate political and sexual and uh, you know other other controversial or you know shouldn't be controversial content on yep. the internet. And the more power we hand to large tech companies and government agencies uh, to kind mm. of make those calls that should be made at a more kind of community-based level, um, the more danger we put those marginalized people in. Um cool. and I just think that needs to be said over and over and over again. Um you know, we want this to be simple. And I see this in my mentions all the time yeah. right now where people are like it's simple, just ban the terrorists. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's simple. just not that simple. I wish it were too. I really right. genuinely do. But we have to understand how this impacts people in dozens of countries, um creating content in dozens of different languages. Um, in dozens of different formats, in jokes, in memes, in videos, um, it's just not as simple as you want it to be. I'm sorry.
0: Also, so I, I, I want to ask. Oh, can just, I just ask a question? Is yeah, that yeah, or yeah? No, if you have a direct response to that, you can.
5: Yeah, constructive tension. I mean, and, and I and I fully agree with the characterization of the Mahana case and and, and generally everything else that I've been saying. The one place where I guess I just uh, you know, maybe this isn't constructive tension, but you know, the, this idea that the people who are harmed most by deplatforming are marginalized communities as a member of one of those marginalized communities i respect the point but i think there's actually a much bigger harm here and it's not to us it's to all of us because it goes like this when we invite corporate interference with speech which is what you know any erosion to 230 would do we effectively constrain political discourse in public. Right? We're giving tools, whether to companies or in the traditional first amendment setting to the government, to silence speech. What that does is force discourse into the shadows. It heightens the narrative of marginalization that the right wing promotes. And it frankly plays into precisely the underlying social pattern that is driving everything from the mob that we saw ransack the Capitol on Wednesday to the attacks on marginalized communities across the country you know this right-wing virulent uh, nationalism, white nationalism is right. fueled by the arbitrariness that corporate content moderation reflects and so it's not just we who are marginalized on the hook you know some people care about us I get the sense frankly most people don't and so I'm just making the point here that whether you care about marginalized communities or whether you just care about they're not being people ransacking the capital, we should get in front of these issues by inviting speech into the public sphere. That's the genius of the First Amendment, our constitutional design, the principles. It's a genius of at least as they were originally constructed some of these tech platforms. One piece I'd also like to just throw on the table here, it's not as if anybody particularly uh, you know, wants corporate domination of the internet. 230 to some extent is a concession recognizing that corporate platforms have eclipsed the internet that many of us knew in the 90s. And as long as Facebook and Google and Microsoft and the big companies effectively operate walled gardens, it's really important to maintain protections so that users can still access the platforms. I would be perfectly happy with the platforms making their own decisions, except that they've all attained monopoly influence on the internet. And so you don't have a choice. When these arbitrary platforms silence a speaker, it's not like you have opportunities to go in other directions. And this starts to speak to some of the antitrust remedies that I think
4: right.
3: Congress has Well, and well, quickly, yeah, if I can add to that, I completely agree. And and, and Shahid, thanks for that uh, kind of constructive tension as you framed it. But I have
0: some more yeah. constructive tension, but yeah.
3: <laughs> okay, great. Oh, yeah, but quickly, I'll also just say that um, blowing up Section 230 would actually solidify the monopoly power of the largest tech companies, right? They are the only ones yeah. that have the money to hire the army of lawyers and lobbyists that mm-hmm. would be needed to navigate a world without this basic protection. Really right? Line. So if you are mad at Facebook and Google, and you think that their policies are harmful, and that they are doing a bad job at moderation, again, in whichever direction, whether you think they're moderating too much, or not moderating enough, or whether you don't like their privacy practices or any number of other things that or we can if you think they leaning
5: to the left or the right? Yeah, um,
3: right. Blowing up section 230 will make that worse because it will crush all of their competition and they will be the only ones left standing, right? Especially if you look at companies like Reddit or Wikipedia that have a more decentralized model, right? Wikipedia is made by thousands of volunteer editors. In a world without Section 230, Wikipedia would be legally responsible for every single edit made by every single one of those volunteer editors. Mm -hmm. That's not possible, right? Like Facebook can live in a world without Section 230. It's just that your Facebook feed would be entirely filled with like cat videos and recipes and other things that Facebook is 100% positive can't get them sued, Right. right? Wikipedia can't survive in a world without Section 230. It just can't. So if you and want a world where want we have only it. Facebook and no Wikipedia, let's get rid of section 230.
5: Totally. And just to, you know, one step on Evan's point, not, not only will Wikipedia encounter existential challenges, but the next platform that could compete with Facebook or Twitter won't ever come into existence because if we erode 230, it's also an anti-innovation measure because it subjects mm. basically small online platforms mm. to burdens that only the big ones are effectively able to meet.
0: Right. I I was just returning to that point about how, uh, Evan, you were pointing out how it harms, you know, disenfranchised communities. And Shahid, you were saying, well, it's not just those communities. And for those of you out there who don't care about us, uh, don't worry. There are other reasons to oppose this. But I actually think Evan's point is extremely important because I think that there are well-intentioned people who think that they are either representing their communities or being allies. Um, And... Uh, it's really important to point out that that while, like people, like you were saying before, people think that this is a way to battle white supremacy and terrorism, um, it will be again the people who are most affected by it. I mean, we see this also um, with criticism of Israel, right? Or Palestinian activists—they are just like mm-hmm. immediately, you know, deactivated. No one says anything about it. Um, but I, I also, I've, a response I've heard to this a lot, and I, I think I brought this up with you, Shahid, uh, the other day, but is the, well, who cares because they or, already go after the left. They already, uh, you know, are are censor the left. So this is just catching up. And what what's your response to, to that, Evan, and then, Shahid?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think the way that I look at this is that most tech policy over the last year, couple years, has been about working the refs right Mm -hmm. um and we're working the refs in a game that we always lose um and 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 i'll I'll unabashedly say we as the left here right yeah because we are never going to be willing to be as disingenuous and full of shit as (laughs) the far right is right and so they will create this faux outrage about anything And then they will go out and do like actually legitimately dangerous, crazy things and cry censorship when they get deplatformed. Right. And so I just think we're working the refs in a game that we can't win. And instead, we need to be, um, you know, really addressing this with structural, meaningful change that makes it so that the tiny handful of tech bros that live in San Francisco and have billions of dollars are not the referees. Of uh, online freedom of expression, right? That is just an untenable situation that is never going to uh, be compatible with basic human rights, with freedom of expression, with democracy, um, with justice. And so, you know, we can work the refs all damn day, um, but until we start playing a different game, um, we're not going to be heading toward the future that we want to live in.
0: Yeah, and Jack has to go, but that's not out of constructive uh, uh, is, tension. It's I have no constructive he, tension with yeah. anyone
2: here. I actually, everyone's so smart, and I, I, I actually feel like I've, you know, sitting through these conversations, I've become more educated, so I leave you with no constructive You
0: say that that's like the, the, as if that's surprising. It doesn't happen every episode. I mean, they, these two guests are especially praiseworthy, but I'm yeah. just saying
2: there's no constructive tension. I just have hmm. to go make dinner. That's all. No yeah, constructive tension. tension at all. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah the tension a constructive tension.
3: Dinner be. is constructive. Me it and my is, yeah. wife, if I don't make the dinner. So yeah. uh
0: that's
5: the tension
3: you're uh, preventing uh, exactly it. Good yeah. to see you all. See you yeah. later. Bye, come on the show. I'm hangry. It's a bad idea. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. You know.
0: So, yeah. It's preemptive hang, it's a hangry preemption, uh prevention. It's a deterrent.
3: Um, I'm trying not to tweet hangry. That's like my name.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. I'm that's trying to, I'm not on trying on to absolutely. tweet at all, honestly. Um but, uh, okay, and what about, uh, what other issues have, have come up? I mean, responses to, oh, wait, actually, Shahid, I wanted to, to share your, your thread on this. Okay. Um, okay, so Shahid has a thread on this. Uh, but while I'm doing that, what so you guys know each other from, activism stuff or yeah we've
5: actually i think we met originally in the music context right but long before we crossed each other as digital rights activists because we had a chance to collaborate across partner organizations back before i ran for congress i worked at the electronic frontier foundation right. and long before that Evan and i met doing music right wasn't it wasn't it through riot folk and your work uh mine is an mc and yours is a musician i think where we first first I think
3: so out. yep like encore many encores ago yes i'm proud of that <laughs> a...
0: what's encore
3: it was National the National Conference, Conference on um, Organized Resistance. And it was at American oh.
5: University. I have an, an incredible story from that that I had a chance recently to tell. It's random, but it I don't know, you folks might find it interesting. I had a chance to represent the second mayor in the country to support the right of consenting adults to marry a partner of their choice. His name was Jason West. He was the mayor of New Paltz, New York. And we filed the second case uh, in, in the country in 2004. I met him on a panel at ENCORE. In 2003, and we were talking about art and activism. He was a puppeteer, still is. He makes big street puppets for street demonstrations, and I organize spoken word artists and hip hop MCs, I still do. And so we were talking about that, and come to find out at the end of the panel that he'd just been elected mayor of a small town. And we get to talking after the panel. I just come out of law school. You know, I'm a baby lawyer in Washington D.C. looking for some way to be helpful. I give him my card, and then six months later. Uh, he became the first and only official in the country to ever be criminally prosecuted for supporting marriage equality. And Encore uh, just has a really uh, soft spot in my heart. You know and I'm, I'm f- for having introduced me to Jason. So much came out of that conference that particular year, I feel really indebted to the organizers, and I, I missed that gathering. It was a really powerful uh, convergence of minds.
0: Awesome. Um, so here's your uh, uh, your thread. And uh, shout out to puppeteers, by the way, underrated group of people. Um, uh, The discussion over Twitter suspending Trump seems to have skipped a few beats. Only the state is even theoretically obligated to respond, uh, sorry, to respect constitutional uh, rights. Corporate platforms are not bound by constitutional limits. Even if they were, Trump's incitements to violence stretch well beyond constitutionally protected speech. If anything, the problem is not the presidential value of Twitter's decision vis-a-vis Trump, but rather it's seemingly arbitrary choice over which particular tweets to cite as the basis for Trump's suspension. He has been inciting violence for a long time. Why only now? Uh, The reason Twitter didn't act until now is because after Wednesday's attack, a swath of previously oblivious people grew more attentive to facts they had long chosen to ignore, that only demonstrates the general arbitrariness of corporate content. By the way, is the thing I'm showing, uh, scrolling down?
5: No, it's just stuck on the first tweet. I was gonna ask if I should drop the link in the chat. No, I have it, 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 but I
0: was highlighting, here it is, crap. Okay, let's start from the beginning. The discussion over Twitter, now is it moving down? It is now, yeah. Okay, sorry, I was in the wrong window. The discussion over Twitter suspending Trump seems to have skipped a few beats. Only the state is even theoretically obligated to respect constitutional rights. Corporate platforms are not bound by constitutional limits. Even if they were, Trump's incitements to violence stretch well beyond constitutionally protected speech. If anything, the problem is not the precedential value of Twitter's decision vis-a-vis Trump, but rather it's seemingly arbitrary choice over which particular tweets to cite as the basis for Trump's suspension. He has been inciting violence for a long time. Why only now? The reason Twitter didn't act until now is because after Wednesday's attack, a swath of previously oblivious people grew more attentive to facts they had long chosen to ignore. That only demonstrates the general arbitrariness of corporate content moderation. There is an irony here worth noting. Trump recently vetoed the ND- NDAA. That's the defense authorization. Right. Demanding reform, right? Which uh, what's his name, Dick Durbin, defended so strongly. Uh, def- demanding, defor- uh, de- demanding reform, demanding reforms to Section Two Hundred and Thirty of the Communications Decency Act. He described Two Hundred and Thirty as a liability shield protecting Silicon Valley tech companies. That's partially true, but only tells half of the story.
5: And I just want to point out that I quote tweeted Evan there.
0: I see that. Yeah, right very good. <laughs> um, 2.30 is a liability shield for platforms, but its ultimate beneficiaries are internet users. Because they're not state actors, tech firms are at liberty to censor user-generated content, but they historically haven't had an incentive to do so. Section 2.30 enables that regime. Um, let's see. Uh, anyone, should I just... Um...
5: Well, what, what the thread starts to go after this is in the yeah. alternatives. So people are clamoring, I think, for... And from different sides of the political aisle, this is worth noting, you know, the idea of reforming 230 is something of a political football. And it turns really on which way people think the bias turns. This gets back to Evan's point about people working on the left. Um, And the rest of the thread starts to get into alternative ways to deal with this corporate arbitrariness rather than remove the liability shield and risk more corporate censorship of user-generated speech. I'd like to see stronger antitrust enforcement. And there are a bunch of ways that that can happen. One of the particular things I get into in that thread, I've long supported a statutory uh, codification of the essential facilities doctrine. The essential facilities doctrine is almost like a lost high watermark of common law, judge-made law. And at its high watermark, it helped do everything from break up AT&T to ensure that Uh, railway companies could use each other's bridges to get over rivers. It's uh, an incredibly important doctrine in the law, and it's been abandoned by the courts, but there's nothing to say that Congress can't revive it, statutorily enshrine it, and bake it into the sauce. And if the essential facilities doctrine were law, that could be used, for instance, to mandate interoperability. One of the challenges here, the only reason anybody cares about anybody getting deplatformed, is because each of the online platforms are effectively separate walled gardens. You can't just move from one to the other. Like, Sure, you can set up a profile, but you can't bring your friends with you or your message history or your content. And interoperability would allow people to do that. And there's no good reason why you can't. The companies have an interest in locking users in, but users and competition, that is to say the goals of antitrust policy, have an interest in ensuring that people can make effective choices. And if you have your choices across a wide variety of platforms and you as a user are empowered to migrate as you see fit, no one frankly would particularly care if any particular platform was arbitrary in its decision-making because none of them would have monopolies. And so you know, part of what's happening here is people are falling for a bit of a bait and switch. There's a real problem and they're being sold snake oil. And, you know, so obviously it's not the first time that happened. I saw a bunch of people who, you know, drank a bunch of snake oil storm the Capitol on Wednesday, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there are legitimate concerns under underlying a lot of uh, grievances. And it's important that as we address those issues that we do so thoughtfully, not in ways that worsen the problems that we seek to solve and not in ways that create entirely new problems that create any number of risks for any number of people in communities.
3: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I, I. That concept of interoperability, just to make it like kind of understandable for, for folks who are not um, <laughs> as deeply nerdy as I love that all, all of us are, um, email. Email is a service that has interoperability. If you have a Gmail account, you can email someone who, bless their heart, still has a Hotmail account, and they can forward your email to someone who is smart and has a Proton mail account. <laughs>
5: When you said "bless your uh, heart," I thought you were going to AOL. But
3: yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, and that's interoperability, right? Um, and if we start thinking about the internet as a place built of protocols rather than platforms, um, we could actually have a situation where you can choose, where the user has choice, right? Where you could opt into Evan Greer's curated. Twitter, where you only get to hear from like trans ladies who love pop punk, or you could opt into the like free for all crazy Twitter where you get to hear from QAnon. (laughs) Um, but if you know, you can actually genuinely have some basic control over what happens on the internet. Um, and also where, um, platforms are not art again, artificially algorithmically amplifying some of the worst content um, for the sole purpose of engagement because their profit model is based in clicks and advertising, right? And so I think if we can, again, we, we think of this as a problem that we can solve by... Um giving platforms more power or demanding that platforms wield their power more responsibly, I would like to take their power away and put that power back in the hands of individual internet users to decide um, what kind of internet we want and what kind of internet will actually serve humanity and serve our children and serve the future that we want to build for them.. Right and on. Can-
0: can you talk about, um, what kind of, uh, reaction you think is appropriate? Like, uh, in terms of dealing with the people who entered the building, uh, you know, there's the, there's a lot of discussions Absolutely, about yeah. surveillance and of course the police state and how do we balance those two things, especially since, uh, again, I, I am pitching this because my audience is left. So I am pitching this left, but, uh, yeah. especially things since those things, you know, really do target, um you know, the most marginalized.
5: I have a hard time not thinking of when we went through this 20 years ago. There were a set of prolific attacks in 2001 and our country rushed headlong into adopting a set of surveillance laws that in 20 years have never been the subject of a transparent debate. I ran against one of its architects, a leader of Congress who just expanded and uh, and extended expiring Patriot Act provisions to give Trump more surveillance powers a year ago And as people are likely clamoring already, Biden has been telegraphing uh, that he'll likely reintroduce a law that was introduced last year and rejected. We don't need new laws on the books to deal with an incident that was already thoroughly criminal to begin with. There are plenty of laws. And the appropriate solution here is to enforce the laws that we have. This was a failure of law enforcement. And the remedy for a failure of law enforcement is internal investigations and accountability, public oversight. Congress's job is to make laws and to make new laws would simply create new opportunities for the constitutional ship to sink, ultimately. uh, From surveillance measures to time and place manner, restrictions on gatherings, there are plenty of existing tools to have stopped in the law to have stopped what happened on Wednesday. What happened on Wednesday was not a failure of the law, it was a failure of law enforcement. And that's an incredibly important thing to parse, if only because the solutions to those two different failures point in very different directions. We've already paid profound costs in our civil liberties to ham-fisted security measures that ultimately privilege security theater before real security. And if we want to get to real security, that's going to take a whole bunch of things, including meaningfully reconsidering U.S. foreign policy and committing to human rights. So many of our security threats are driven ultimately by our own international longstanding abuses. And that's a conversation that we in the United States have frankly never been willing to have. And, And I think it's due time that we did, while we still clamor to have that broader conversation about our footprint in the world and who we might be alienating by what corporate resource extraction or what human rights abuses where. In the very least, we should guard our civil liberties by not allowing this security crisis to be used as a pretext to just further empower an executive branch that has already and frankly long been run amok.
3: And if I could jump in on that with a concrete example, right? I got a call from a reporter at a mainstream national outlet today um, about the fact that it sounds like at least some police departments have been using Clearview AI, which is perhaps one of the most controversial providers of facial recognition software, to try to identify and track down, um, some of the white supremacist assholes that stormed the Capitol. Right. And they asked me, well, well, what do I think about this? And I guess what I would say is that we're missing the point. If we focus on, um, what the state response to, again, this individual act of white supremacist violence is, and we are harming, um, racial justice and uh, basic civil liberties and human rights if we lionize and normalize a software that we know has systemic racist bias baked into it and that we know automates and exacerbates racist policing across the board. So if we take this moment and we say, well, here's a really good use case for this sketchy surveillance technology, what we end up doing is actually putting more people in prison, feeding mass surveillance or feeding mass incarceration. Um, you know, we already have more people in prison in this country than ever, you know, any other country in the world. Right. Um, we, we are in a uh, crisis. We've had, a, you know, uprisings across the country over the summer, uh, around, The fact that policing in this country has been uh, upholding white supremacy for centuries, right? And we would be making an enormous mistake if we respond to this act of violent white supremacy by pouring more money and software and weapons into um, the very systems that uphold that, right? You know, not. Not all those who wear badges or workforces are the same that burn crosses, but they're all upholding the same system that those who burn crosses are burning them for, right? And we have to contend with that. Um, It's been kind of astounding to see folks, uh, you know, some folks go from defund the police to, um, you know, cops are heroes and will save us from the Nazis uh, in a matter of hours. Um, You know, we need to stick to our uh, principles and recognize that. This, was not a, this is not a new problem, right? That's another thing I think is so crucial. I feel like part of the impetus to say, you know, you know, both on the surveillance side, but also going back to our previous conversation about the internet and speech, but the impetus to say like the internet caused this feels to me like it's about a collective unwillingness to admit that white supremacist violence has been a constant in this country since it was formed and built on stolen land.
5: Right. The internet um, is absolutely passing the buck. And, and you're absolutely <laughs> right about the long-standing pattern here. And just to, to extend on that, I didn't mean to cut you off. So Did you no, have go ahead? You know, I, I see two, two strands here, just to pick up one with respect to what's driving this knee-jerk inclination towards more security measures. It's just fear. That's not new. And and I I'll echo FDR here. He said it quite plainly. The only thing we have to fear is that fear itself, because it drives us to make stupid decisions. And and I'll remix him with Eisenhower, who told us that remixing. Profit, do a
0: mashup, a DJ mashup
5: of the two. FDR and Eisenhower mashup. I feel like I should do like a Photoshop mashup would be better than a DJ one. But uh, unless some of them mix some beats, I don't know about. But
0: yeah, that's right.
5: Yeah, you know, Eisenhower comes by after FDR. After FDR says the only thing to fear is fear itself. Eisenhower explains that when you remix profit with security it gets particularly pernicious because people will pay anything for the illusion of security, even when it's not even connected to anything real and even when it ends up undermining their own rights. And and that's the story of the last, frankly, 70 years. I want to connect this back now to ways we might actually move forward. What could we do that is constructive? In response to last Wednesday's events, Evan nailed this. You know, There are certainly some elements of law enforcement that have long been infiltrated by organized white supremacist militias. There are documented strategies to infiltrate law enforcement agencies, as well as the military, both to gain access to material, but particularly training. And I want to cite a particular whistleblower. This is a former FBI special agent. He spent 17 years Infiltrating white nationalist groups before blowing a whistle in 2004, his name's Michael German. He then worked for the ACLU for the Brennan Center. He has a book out. He's been warning of the threat of violent white supremacist organized violence, white supremacist violence in the United States for over 15 years. None of this is new at all in any way. It's not even remotely new. And it, and you know when I talked about it Twitter, some people growing aware of things they'd long chosen to ignore you know, it, it's a it's a pattern, unfortunately, that when people become aware of things that they chose to ignore, then they rush headlong to do something about it. If we want to do something about it, let's investigate law enforcement agencies across the United States and get the white supremacists out. That's something we could meaningfully do that would actually be helpful here. And it would not just be helpful to security and marginalized communities who others, otherwise have to deal with these actors, and I'm not for a minute going to say that this is enough because I actually would like to defund police and shift those resources into better uses. But on the way there, at the very least, one set of actors that's going to be helped when we weed out white supremacist cops are the cops who are not white supremacists because they all get bad names for it, which is to say everyone should be able to agree on that agenda, that need to launch a sweeping internal investigation of police departments and law enforcement agencies across the United States. That's A useful consensus that I would hope the left could support.
0: Yeah, I think like in terms of the fear, I do think that there's something I guess that bothers me or worries me, which is that um, I do think that there are people who think that it's they're being good like radicals um, and good leftists and good allies uh, by by like saying like you know fuck all white fuck these white supremacists and take them off you know block them all up and and uh, take them offline. And it's it's not just fear. It's like they think this is the right thing to do, and they think that this is what being like anti-racist. What, yeah, yeah. I, they think it's what you know. It's like a woke security state. Um, and I, I I think it's like on for, You know, we I'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to call people in. I'm not someone on Twitter. I need I call people out. I'll stop that. But <laughs> but, uh, but I, I do call out the people who pretend like anyone who's grappling with this stuff is some Trumpian uh enabler so uh do you guys want to yeah if you want to i mean i
3: guess i i just think there there's a number of different things at play here right one is that and let's be real like internet like the internet freedom space as a as a whole and certainly the tech companies themselves and their defenders have um systematically downplayed the very real harms that are being done by big tech companies' business models, and they have um, repeatedly sort of attempted to just be like, "No, this isn't a real problem," and so there's a there is a gap of trust, right, where people understandably just do not um kind of take them at their word when they claim to be defending freedom of expression right um so i think to be clear
5: i think you'd agree with this there's any number of reasons not to take them at their word right right. there's
3: absolutely you know and there's you know there's no reason to take them at their word in fact um and so i think we have to acknowledge that and accept it but i think again um, we need to get out of the realm of theoreticals and slippery slopes and actually listen to the people who are most affected. And when you actually sit down and listen to sex workers and to Palestine activists and to black liberation activists and to prison abolitionist activists and to people who have been on the receiving end of this, of the, the wrong side of this type of power, then you are forced to think about it in a more complex way. And then you start to be pushed into thinking about, okay, you know, there's a difference between edge platforms like Twitter and Facebook, which are essentially an online message board. And it does make sense to have, you know, another thing too, is like, people are like, okay, we want no moderation. We saw this with Parler, right? As soon as people started posting on Parler, basically like honeypots to get the white supremacists that stormed the Capitol to hand over their personal information, Parler was like, oh shit, I guess we have to moderate, right? Um, Without moderation, your online feed is basically full of like porn and spam, right? So like everyone actually does want there to be some amount of moderation and it's silly to pretend that we don't, right? Um, But... Again, it becomes about is it transparent? Is there meaningful due process? Um, it, and and also, as Shaw had said at the beginning, is there competition so that if you don't like the way that one platform is doing moderation, you can go to another? You know, I think you know Mike Maznick over at TechDirt has written extensively about this, and I think he argues persuasively that doing content moderation at the scale that a company like Facebook would have to do it at is just impossible. And that really the only kind of valid um, moderation, like terms of service is uh, you can't be on my platform if you're an asshole. And I decide if you're an asshole Um, that only works though, in a world where we can like, where we have choice, right? When we live in, we can't pretend, you know, there's been a lot of debate over the past couple of days about like, well, is this a first amendment violation? Is it a section 230 violation? Right. And I, you know, one thing I, I will just say clearly is platforms, Deciding to not host the speech of anyone is actually protected by the First Amendment. Let's just be very clear about that. They have a legal right to do so. Just because something is protected by the First Amendment doesn't mean that it doesn't have serious implications for freedom of expression. And in a world where a tiny handful of corporations have grown so much power over Traffic essentially, right? You know, and I think there's another thing here where if you're an activist and you've actually experienced the power of using the internet to get someone out of prison or, uh, you know, sound the alarm about something and get a corporation to end an evil practice, um, you're maybe a little bit more sensitive to this because you're aware of the fact that, sure, Facebook is a private corporation and they can technically, legally speaking, do what they want. But if they decide to cut off your campaign right at the height of it, um, they have effectively kneecapped your ability to have your voice heard and make change um, because they have so much of a monopoly over human attention, right? So I think it, so much of this, these things are, we want them to be simple, but in the end, um, it becomes about power and who has power and who doesn't. Um, and we need to be more thoughtful um, before we just go cheering on those who have power, using their power in ways that we like, Um, Without contending with the fact that the fact that they have the power in the first place is actually a profound danger to uh, the future of human society and a profound danger to our ability to actually dismantle the structures that have led us to this point. Right. And again, this goes back to just, you know, maybe I'm just old and I remember that like these were problems before Donald Trump arrived um, and they will be problems after he heads to Mar-a-Lago and spends the rest of his life complaining that the election was stolen from him or whatever he does next. Um, And there will be problems that we need a free and open Internet as a tool and a weapon to solve. Um, And if we uh, give up on that um, kind of out of a zealous attempt to You know, show our uh, deference to these companies. um, You know, we're actually giving up one of the most powerful tools we have to hold elected officials accountable, to uh, hold powerful institutions accountable, and to organize against the corrosive and hateful ideologies that we saw on display in the Capitol this week.
0: Yeah, great. Um, And uh, was it anything? Uh, I have a lot more questions, but it's uh, you've been on for a while. I'm really thankful I should have you guys uh, back on because I have questions ranging from like parlor to impeachment to uh, criminal justice, how to deal with people, like where should we, you know, all right, I'll ask you one final question. So uh, Gerald Horn was on my show, who's this, you know, extremely wise, prolific historian, um, Marxist, um, uh, focuses on black history, And he was saying, you know, we need to lock up the fascists, throw the book at them, take them off the streets. What, how, I mean, again, considering that we think of, I mean, I think all of three of us uh, have problems with the carceral state um, and the prison industrial complex, what should be done about this? Uh, You know, like, do we, and of course there's the issue of like the affluenza discussion, right, which is where white people get away with. Literal murder sometimes. Um, how do we how do we like have this discussion? How do we organize? How do we engage in activism that doesn't just say, okay, let's lock more people up who are not black and brown? And how does that apply to the people who stormed the Capitol and the, you know?
5: So storming the Capitol is, is an unambiguously criminal act. Not only is it trespassing, it's arguably sedition. There's the like property you know, destruction elements. So there's there's lots of crimes that those people could be charged with. We long have had, and these are ephemeral at times, but it's really important that we maintain protections against status crimes, which is to say, if you're going to be charged with a crime, it shouldn't be because of something you believe or who you are. It should be something you do. An act can be criminal. Identities, ideologies, persons are not. And we have to maintain that distinction. We also, to this whole point about you know, recognizing the way that the shoe changes feet, we should be thoughtful in acknowledging that whatever we might do or seek to do to white supremacists, it's going to come back and bite it all at the communities that are array themselves against them. Because these the nature of these kinds of restrictions on speech, they're always ideologically ecumenical, at least the restrictions are. You know, the, the shoe changes feet, it doesn't stay on one. And we can't in any way <clears throat> have any comfort presuming that we will always be on one end of that dynamic. I think in terms of rooting out white supremacy, if there is an arena for criminal law enforcement's internal investigations at police departments, there's not a single good reason that anyone in a sheriff's department or a police department or a state highway patrol or the FBI or CBP or ICE or name your agency should be able to surreptitiously participate in militia organizations while wearing a badge. You know that is a, that is a violation of an oath that they all take. And that's something that we should enforce. And that's a, again, that's an existing regulation that is just so lax that anybody can sign up for a badge and still be part of their hate group. And and that's an incompatibility that we absolutely are entitled as a polity to enforce, to make sure that the people that we give badges to and give weapons to, to have. A monopoly on the use of force, that those people are actually using that authority on behalf of the public and the state, not on behalf, as it seems was the case with some of the Capitol police officers, of their friends or their ideological allies or their own right-wing political fantasies. Uh, and that's, I think, an appropriate place for us to turn to weed out White supremacists in law enforcement. I think that's a uh, overdue, really compelling, and then an also somewhat bounded arena with unfortunately lots of room for us to run.
3: Yeah. And, and quickly, I, I completely agree with that. And I guess what I would say is we should also separate the legal argument from a kind of a broader moral argument, right? And I think legally speaking, Shahid is completely right. Morally speaking, I think it's important that we separate tactics from ideology. Right? Mm-hmm. If people were storming the Capitol to demand that Congress finally pass, for example, uh, legislation uh, to uh, end qualified immunity for police officers that murder that systematically murder people. I would be cheering it on, whether it's illegal or not, right? The problem with what these folks did was not necessarily the fact that they stormed the Capitol or even that they engaged in militant action. It was that they did so to reinforce white supremacy and to hold in place a white supremacist wannabe dictator, right? And we should condemn them because of why they did it as much as what they did, um, and I think that that's really important as we think about how we move forward from this. Um, I think it's crucial uh, that, you know, again, it, it to me, it's sort of beside the point whether we do um you know, kind of what we do about these individuals and more important, how we move forward as a society and what we do in terms of policy broadly. That said, I'll also just say that, you know, I oppose, the prison system as a way of dealing with our problems, and I also support harm reduction, right? And while we still have um, this fundamentally flawed system, um, I do support uh, using it to the best of our ability um, to hold people um, who do profound harm accountable, right? And I think the you know even more cut and dry example of that is cops who murder people. <laughs> Right, who should face charges and should go to jail for what they do um, in a world where we still have jails. Um, But again, I think uh, if we focus too much on that and we spend too much time being like, all right, have we tracked down every single person that broke into the Capitol rather than focusing on um, the underlying systemic issues, the underlying collective unwillingness to accept uh, and grapple with the profound threat of white supremacy as an ideology in our country, of authoritarianism as an ideology in our country, um, I think we're gonna be missing the point and we're going to end up um, spending a lot of time on policies that do more harm than good rather than getting to work on the things we need to be doing, like dealing with the impending eviction crisis, getting people those checks that they need to put food on the table for their children in the middle of a pandemic, like uh, passing strong federal data privacy le- legislation that would actually rein in big tech companies, like scaling back and defunding police and putting that money into community programs um, that actually uplift communities and start dealing with the deep wounds and harm um, and injustice that are at the core of of um what we saw this week i think again uh it's sort of like responding to 9-11 with the patriot act instead of responding to it by um changing profoundly our foreign policy Right. right um that is sort of the uh the situation i think we find ourselves in if we focus on expanding surveillance expanding authoritarian structures rather than um changing the underlying systems that got us into this mess in the first place
0: yeah one last thing, I I don't know if you guys have to go uh, one or one last thing. May I?
3: Sure.
0: Yeah. All right. OK. <laughs> all right. So I mean, this is going to be uh, conf- uh, controversial, but like. Not all the people who stormed the Capitol are the same. And, you know, there's white supremacy as a ideology. There's white supremacy as like a structure and um you know, there are people like I was looking at the footage of of something, which we'll get into. I think Wednesday, by the way. But you know, and some people are like, no, "No, no, stop!" Like they really didn't want people to to enter after a certain point. I'm not like glorifying all the people who were storming the Capitol, but I think that we kind of we it's it's uh, somewhat at our own peril if we like dismiss everyone who was there or everyone who supports this as kind of on the same level of. Totally. Uh, yeah, I'm, and, yeah. and I don't, and it's you know, I'm just going to be honest. Like, I feel nervous even saying that. Like, woes me. I'm fine with that, but I don't know how to, to how to like walk yeah. that line of acknowledging real white supremacy that there are those elements there. Um,
5: Maybe yeah. another element of constructive tension here. You know, in my mind, certainly the white supremacy that people were promoting on Wednesday was problematic. If there was a mob storming the Capitol, even if it was promoting an end to qualified immunity, and it was like terrifying legislators and stopping the certification of a vote, I would have a problem with that. As much as I support ending qualified immunity, the mechanism of our democracy is constitutionally supposed to be beyond politics, right? And I do think that there's a huge difference between, on the one hand, people who I might describe as like rubes who were there to, and they thought they were there to be at a First Amendment action, and they ended up participating in something that it got escalated. And then, particularly, you know, the, the figure that comes to my mind, there was a, an image we all saw of a uh, man dressed in tactical gear, uh, vaulting over a banister with a bunch of zip ties in one hand. Very clearly, like you yeah. know, a very fit military figure, uh, and the idea that there were people with military training, and preparation, and tools to enter a hostage situation, and that they came within mere feet and seconds of holding senators hostage. I don't think Americans even still understand how close we came to losing our democracy. Uh and and I do think that that is a, a, an offense to the republic separate from the the white supremacy. And I think that we it's worth disaggregating. The law traditionally requires not just an act but also a state of mind. Mens rea. Exactly. And yeah, this takes me back to one of our very first conversations about the felony murder rule in New York on Right. Video. Yeah. Um you know, but the people who thought they were going to a First Amendment protest, they didn't have the same mens rea, the same state of mind as whatever that guy was vaulting over the banister, getting ready to go take some hostages. And people who are going to take hostages, that's political violence. That is terrorism. Somebody showing it up at a gathering and following a crowd and then ending up, oh my God, what did I end up in? That's not terrorism. That's something very different. And I think it's appropriate to disaggregate the acts and the states of mind. I think it's it's foolish to lump everybody participating in any group activity together, and I think this is one area where it's it behooves us to to assess who were the people there to do harm and to particularly focus our attention on identifying and prosecuting and holding accountable to those people.
3: If I can just say one one last thing on that, because we we haven't touched on it yet, and and I I don't know there there maybe there's more constructive tension there too. I, I think it's it's a real challenge, but. I think it it speaks to this broader issue, right, which is that we tend to make really poor decisions for reasons that seem really reasonable on their face, right? And a clear example of this is around encryption technology, right? Uh, I've already seen um, pundits on MSNBC and elsewhere saying, you know, this is why we need the FBI to have full access to encrypted messaging apps like Telegram and Signal and WhatsApp, right? Right? This whole thing was organized in plain sight on social media, right? No amount of additional surveillance or wiretapping or interception of messaging would have prevented this. Um and it's crucial that we grapple with the com- the the kind of messiness of this because you know we're dealing right now with parlor which is a shit show dumpster fire um but it's only a a, it's not a very distant path from there to saying well signal is an encrypted messaging app where we can't see what's going on people could create groups on signal where they plan horrific acts of violence Um, So Apple and Google should ban Signal from the App Store, right? Um, That is, you know, we're we're like one step away from there right now. And, um, you know, we've seen the FBI make the exact same argument about encryption in the past, um, where they've used terrorism or uh, horrific acts of child sexual abuse um, as an excuse to attack encryption when you can't actually ban encryption. Encryption is math, Um, people who want to use encryption to do bad things will always be able to find encryption to do such bad things. Um, Banning it or criminalizing it simply takes it out of the hands of uh, kind of the mainstream and puts large numbers of people in danger of government surveillance or uh, surveillance by stalkers, harassers, abusers, uh, criminals. Um, And so I just think, again, you know, There is this tendency to, um, you know, where fringe cases or cases that seem really, you know, again, you know, understandably horrific, where people are desperate to do something, um, that is where we lose um, ground. And again, not in a slippery slope, hand wavy sort of way, in a actually well documented Um, you know, recent history way uh, where we have seen time and time again that we enact policies that do more harm than good um, if we don't think critically about how they will impact um, those who are most vulnerable.
0: Yes, agreed. Well, um, someone said that uh, they are upset you didn't uh, win Shahid against uh, Pelosi someone said
5: the future but
0: last time someone said evan should run for office um yeah and come back because i have so many more questions and lots of other people have questions and um we didn't even touch a lot of we barely got to the surface but uh, of
5: of an hour well spent i think time yeah yeah
0: yeah um i'll stay on uh to talk to you know answer some questions from guests and uh not from guests sorry that would be really funny (laughs) guys any questions for me (laughs)
3: <laughs> uh, the new year treating you so far. Is that yeah. a real fireplace? I
5: want it to know. Is, yeah. It is a
0: real fireplace. Yeah. It's not I'm a green so screen, I'm yeah.
3: jealous.
5: Well, yeah, Papa Halper tonight? Because I kind of- Oh, I've got to bring my dad in next fireplace. time.
0: I will. I'll bring him in. I'll bring okay. him in to talk about, uh, yeah. And I'll bring in Bodhi next time. It's a little doggy. Um, wow. Yeah. But again, thank you so much. Everyone, check out uh, Evan's work and Shah's work. And um, come back on.
5: Great to be with you. Great, Great. to nice see
0: lady. you. Bye, guys. you Thanks again so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Don't forget to support the show at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. If you prefer video to audio, you can check out The Katie Helper Show live. That is on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And we live stream Wednesdays at 9 p.m. and Sundays at 7 p.m.